They're everywhere. Surely you have seen them too. Those boxes we are so often asked to check off, tucking our identities into the contained space of categories meant to help others and the data systems they manage to know who we are. By race, age, education, income, religion, political affiliation, so many tiny boxes into which we are to fold and fit our beautifully complex identities. But the first box, the one often checked on our behalf before we are even born, is the box of gender. And it's happening even earlier now for some parents, the long-standing enthusiasm of birth announcements announcing it's a boy or it's a girl has been moved up in time with the practice of having reveal parties. Maybe you've been to one of these before a child is born in which the gender of the unborn is announced with great suspense and weight of importance, all of which might be fine if it were only that simple. My own experience as a parent has been a little different. You might call it outside of the box, as the saying goes, but it is increasingly shared by many others. There was nothing unusual about our experience at first. Like many in our generation, my husband David and I were told the gender of our child months before the birth by an ultrasound technician who said we were having a boy despite the fact that we had not asked and did not feel a need to know. So we continued decorating the baby's room in pinks and blues both, and when my mother asked if she shouldn't leave the pink out of the quilt she was making for the crib, I said, definitely not. For although David and I followed some traditional gender stereotypes ourselves in our basic activities, preferences, and expression, there were plenty of ways in which we broke out of those roles. Because we didn't believe in letting gender have the last word about who we were and what we did. And we wanted the same freedom for our child. As it turned out, though, in the early years of our child's life, we discovered we had much to learn about what that freedom really meant. For as our beloved son, whom we then called Charlie, grew from an infant to a toddler, and as we tried to make room for them to show us who they really were, at almost every turn, our child showed us a very feminine way of being Charlie. They had no interest in balls or trucks or roughhousing of almost any kind. They preferred books and dolls, a toy kitchen, peer girlfriends. At age four, they were posing coquettishly in dance class photos and sashaying through the house in a pair of ruby slippers. An articulate early reader, our child made up stories about boys and girls who switched identities and wrote sweet little notes to us, signing them with a self-chosen pseudonym, Rose. This was more than 20 years ago. And David and I knew almost nothing about gender identity or what transgender meant 
And no one we knew at the time was talking about being queer as anything other than the slur it had been for gay people when we were growing up. Although we understood somewhat what, that the boxes we all check off, declaring male and female, were too small for the wingspan of identity, as the poet puts it, we didn't realize they are also too few in number. For those of you who want to learn more about this, and I hope that will include many of you, please stay after the service for the workshop Kat will be leading on gender equity, compassion, and justice for all genders, the Gender 101 workshop that will happen here at 1230. It's free, open to all, and a simple, accessible way to learn about the role gender plays in all of our lives. But for now, I'll offer just this quick overview, hoping to, hoping to open up those gender boxes and unpack them a little bit. The truth is, when the ultrasound technician looks at that fuzzy image on the screen and says boy or girl, not only is the image unclear, but the pronouncement is based on just one thing, anatomy, which is the same primary factor that is used in choosing male or female on a birth certificate. And that birth certificate later in life will determine the gender on our driver's license and our passport and so many other things. However, we now know that what we traditionally think of as gender is so much more complex than that. It is a combination of at least five factors. Anatomy is one, then there's DNA, or our XX or XY chromosomes, or whatever that combination is, our hormones, our psychology, or our core identity, and then our expression. And as anyone who has done work by committee knows, when you bring five voices to the table, the discussions can be rich, but they do not always agree. <laughs> so we first have to realize that declaring one's gender solely by anatomy can be woefully inadequate at best and a bit dictatorial, silencing all the other factors that are at play. We might be better off understanding gender as a conversation between these five factors and much more. And in that conversation, on any given day and in any given person, there may be dominant voices, or they may actually all agree, but it will not always be so. In some cases, the different voices of anatomy, chromosomes, hormones, of emotions and core self, and of how we see ourselves and how others see us, all of these voices together can create a kind of cacophony that can be hard to understand. Or they can also be like a choral performance where the different parts of the choir take turns carrying the melody of who we are and how we present ourselves to the world, it can be that fluid, that multidimensional, that harmonic, and that beautiful. Which brings us to the matter of having only two boxes. 
When we have only two boxes to check as our options, we can be confused by that. If you've ever felt the frustration over the lack of choice in a two-party political system, perhaps you know how much gets left out. Or as Unitarian Universalists, perhaps you've had the experience of filling out a form that asks for your religion. There's probably a box for Christian, for Jewish, maybe for Buddhist and Hindu, maybe there's an other or a nun, even with more than two options, does this adequately reflect the deep history and beautiful complexity of our faith tradition? The way it has grown from Judeo-Christian roots and from the historical emergence of religious humanism that began right here, and the way it draws from each of these wisdom traditions and more, and the way it includes members who also practice some of these religions with their own boxes while still fiercely identifying themselves as Unitarian Universalists. How do we choose which box to check for an identity like that? When it comes to gender, two boxes are simply not enough. We have learned scientifically, culturally, and historically that the categories of male and female as mutually exclusive options that preclude all others is simply incomplete. In nature, we have many examples of greater variety in gender, and as humans, we do as well. What some regard as a constellation and others call a galaxy of gender. And in that galaxy, there are people whose gender identity is different from that which was assigned to them at birth based on anatomy, some of whom may transition to their true gender identity given the choice and the resources and the support they need to do that. But there are also other transgender people for whom the choice between male and female is either too small or too rigid. These people, while also transgender, might name themselves by additional monikers, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender queer or gender fluid. These are all names they might choose for themselves. And for these people, the boxes themselves make no sense. Of course, breaking these boxes open is not easy not only because the architecture of our culture and society is built on a framework of two genders, but because our brains are too. The human brain is a busy place of so many ideas and emotions and sensations that it needs to take shortcuts whenever it can to process and understand things. These shortcuts are known as frames often when we're learning any new concept or understanding, we first have to break out of the old frames that govern our thinking. This is true in our work for justice, too. We must build new frames in order to bring about the new thinking and the new policies and the new realities that we seek and support in the world. The gender binary of male and female is one of these most basic frames. And we use it to understand identity, capacity, roles, relationships, strengths, weaknesses, and so much more. It creates a dualism 
that is reinforced by our language, and this makes it especially hard to break out of the either-or boxes of male and female, because the pronouns available to us in traditional English require that we choose between he and she. We have no gender-neutral singular personal pronoun as an alternative to he or she, or at least we have not had one until now. When a growing number of people are adopting the pronouns they, them, and theirs, as singular pronouns for referring to them. There's grammatical precedence for this. We say, if somebody left their phone behind on a table, we pick the phone up and we say, somebody left their phone here. We don't think twice about that kind of gender neutral use of the word they. So while my own pronouns are still she, her, and hers, I now refer to my son, Kat, as they, and they may ask you to do the same. Others are adding whole new pronouns to our lexicon, such as Z, and here, and here's, and many others. And still, other people ask that we avoid using pronouns at all. Why would we do this? It can be challenging. It can be uncomfortable. Some of you may be shaking your heads, if not visibly, inside. I have heard no shortage of objections over the matter of gender and personal pronouns from some of my favorite authors, as well as some of my own family members, who have told me point blank with varying degrees of sensitivity, no, I can't do that. It's too awkward, they say. Or, I love language too much to do that. Really? I'm a writer. I love language, too. And I especially love the way it is meant to grow with us, to adapt to new understandings, to break open the boxes of grammar and glossaries when they become too small for who we are and who we are becoming. If there is a sacrifice to be made regarding gender, we might do well to begin with sacrificing our rigid attachment to old linguistics that no longer serve our knowledge and experience of life's true and beautiful diversity and fluidity. Giving up our comfort with the way we're used to speaking and being willing to learn new ways of speaking that make room for each of us to show up and be seen for who we really are. We are, many of us, trying to learn these new ways, asking people what their pronouns are, even if we think we know, saying what our pronouns are when people ask us, even if we think they should know, stopping with our assumptions, as the poet says, trying to break our old habits of seeing and knowing and speaking in the dualistic confines of he and she, boys and girls, men and women, male and female. This is a beautiful, if sometimes awkward, effort and unfolding. But it is more than that, too. The breaking open of the boxes of gender is not just a grammar lesson in new pronoun usage, nor is it a mathematics lesson adding new personal options for identity and self-expression, although those, these would be cause enough for us to do it. 
This is a gravely important call for justice aimed at ending oppression, discrimination, humiliation, violation, and violent assault. Make no mistake, the work to expand our, our notions of gender and our embrace of gender diversity and fluidity is for many in the queer and transgender community a matter of life and death. It's true. We are in a time of growing awareness and perhaps more incrementally growing acceptance of gender variance, evidenced by the number of transgender characters and content in our movies and TV shows, and by the increasing coverage in the media. But the reality of living outside the two-box gender system that still rules our thinking, our birth certificates, our driver's license, passports, and bathrooms looks quite different. Last year, in 2017, we surpassed 2016 as the deadliest year for transgender people in the United States. And the vast majority of these killed were transgender women of color living at the intersection of transphobia, racism, and sexism. This is a sobering reminder, friends, that as visibility and acceptance increase, so does backlash, often in violent ways. A large national survey of transgender people in the United States in 2015 offered this wider, this wider picture of transgender experience in our country. Of those who were out as transgender in K through 12 schools, over half were verbally harassed one in four were physically assaulted, and one in eight were sexually assaulted. Almost one in five experienced so much harassment they changed schools. Of those in the workforce, one in three reported just in the previous year being fired or denied a promotion or experiencing other workplace harassment or assault because of their gender identity. Almost half of all respondents reported being sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. 40%, 40 have attempted suicide in their lifetime, a rate nine times higher than the average population. One in 12 who were out with their family of origin had been kicked out of the house and one in 10 ran away from home. And of great relevance to us as a gathered community of faith here, one in five of those surveyed had, who had ever been part of a religious or spiritual community left because of rejection. Remember, these are not just numbers. They represent real people, real lives, and the daily experience of almost one and a half million transgender people in the United States. And the story they tell of rejection and alienation, the discrimination and abuse and assault is a troubling reality for those who don't fit neatly into the gender boxes assigned to them at birth. Being transgender carries high stakes for safety, for education, employment, and the most basic sense of belonging so critical to our human well-being and our understanding of who we are and who we are called to be. 
What then are we asked to do as Unitarian Universalists, as people in a covenantal faith tradition committed to radical hospitality, to justice, and to love? There are three covenants to keep us engaged in the work of love, writes Mark Nepo in the reading we heard earlier. It is not the work of love to change others or force their growth in our direction. It is the work of love to, change, to create conditions by which what is true and beautiful in all we behold can grow and blossom, bringing forth its deepest nature. The work of love, he writes, depends on giving others, especially young people, a sense of safety in the world, nurturing their confidence to lean into life and the unknown, not away from these eternal resources. Especially in this week after one more school shooting, I call our attention to those world words, how do we foster safety among our young people? And finally, Nepo says, the third covenant of love is to keep each other company. When we're drowning in our experience and awash in our feelings, until it can all right-size, until our experience and feelings can once again sustain us, these covenants, he says, exercise the muscle of compassion we call the heart. Breaking open the boxes of gender is a work of love and overcoming the fear that divides and threatens our civil society. Exercising the muscle of compassion, we call the heart instead of reinforcing the rigid walls in our brains, separating male from female, men from women, him from her, and us from them. Are you ready to let go? of old habits of thinking, perceiving, and being, to open your heart and your mind to a wider understanding of what we mean when we say he or she or they or we. I remember when our son Kat was about to turn six and they'd been asking for a kitten for some time so David and I decided it was as good a time as any to add a feline member to our family. And the morning of Kat's birthday, we took a box big enough to fit a kitten inside, and we wrapped it with the bottom open and a bow on top. When it was time for Kat to open their presents, we made them leave the room while we retrieved the new kitten from hiding, placed it in the middle of the living room floor, and put this wrapped bottomless box on top of it. And when Kat returned, they found this single present sitting in the middle of the living room floor. But before Kat got close enough to pick it up, the box began to move. <laughs> and Kat stepped back wide-eyed and astonished. The box shook a little bit and shivered and shifted this way and that. Go ahead, we said. It's OK. Pick it up. And when Kat did, it's hard to say who was more surprised, <laughs> the kitten or the child. Regarding each other in that moment, box thrown aside, each of them beautifully present to the other, 
limber, alert, and so alive in the moment of true encounter. This, my friends, is what we are all invited to do today, to meet one another without the boxes that conceal and constrain us, to see beneath the categories that divide us not only from one and another, but from the greater wholeness we each carry within. And to enter the living, loving movement of our hearts and minds and identity. To say to one another, and really mean it, namaste, the sacred in me sees the sacred in you. So may it be.